Thank you for listening to our Emmanuel Baptist Church podcast sermon series by Pastor Sean Cole. Emmanuel exists to display God's glory, declare God's gospel, and to disciple for God's great commission. If you have any questions about this message or would like more information about our church, you can visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. Chapter 17, and I do want to just, as you're turning there, just give a word of personal privilege. I do thank you very much for the privilege of being your pastor. Um, it's, it's hard to believe it's been over 12 and a half years that I have served as your pastor, and I count it a joy and a privilege to stand at this place every Sunday. And I don't take it for granted that you would show up and listen to me, but I'm thankful that God has a word that is true, and I just want to be true to that each week. And so thank you for all the cards and all the gifts and all of the, the words of encouragement. I do appreciate this church family, and I appreciate all that you are to me and my family. Well, no one really knows where the phrase, pull yourself up by your bootstraps, actually comes from. You, you know the phrase, but nobody knows where it comes from. The general consensus was that it was first used in the 1857 novel, The Adventures of Baron Munchausen. Now, that was made into a movie, but Baron Munchausen was this fantastical character with a handlebar mustache that would be shot out of cannons and do all these crazy things. And supposedly, he was able to pull himself and his horse up by the straps out of a swamp, a muddy swamp, and thus he pulled himself up out by his bootstraps, which is an impossibility. Later on, after the Civil War in America, author Horatio Alger would write these stories about young boys that were coming out of poverty, and they were making a name for themselves. It would be these rags-to-riches stories where these boys, after the Civil War, would pull themselves up by their bootstraps. By the time the 70s and 80s came, it just became part of our vernacular. We all know what it means to pull yourself up by your bootstraps. It means that you use some hard work, you use ingenuity, you blood, sweat, and tears to get ahead, to try to advance, to somehow achieve the American dream. And this pull yourself up by your bootstraps really resonates with our pioneer spirit as Americans. We value rugged individualism. This pioneer spirit that I can do it. We like beating the odds. We like climbing the corporate ladder. We like rags to riches, the American dream. And we also like the statement, there ain't no such thing as a free lunch. There ain't nothing free in this world. You've got to work hard to get it. There's not just these handouts. You've got to work hard. And embedded in this whole concept of there ain't no such thing as a free lunch and, and you got to pull yourselves up by your bootstraps, embedded in our psyche as Americans is this whole idea of the self-made man, the self-made person. Benjamin Franklin was the first self-made man, as many believe. The son of a candlestick maker that rose the ranks to become one of the greatest minds in American history, this great inventor, this great statesman, the self made man. Anybody know who Ray A. Kroc is? You probably see his picture every time you go into the Golden Arches. Ray A. Kroc, he was a self-made man. He was a high school dropout. At the age of 15, he became an ambulance driver during World War II. After the war, this is what he did. During the night, 
He played radio, or he played piano for radio stations, and during the day, he sold paper cups. And that's an exciting life, selling paper cups and playing piano for radio. Then he bought a milkshake machine, this patented milkshake machine. And for 17 years, he went across the country, door-to-door, restaurant-to-restaurant, to sell this milkshake machine. Then in 1954, in San Bernardino, California, he goes into a restaurant owned by the McDonald brothers. And he sells these two men a milkshake machine as a 53-year-old man. A few years later, in 1961, he would purchase McDonald's, and the rest is history. Over a billion sold. Ray A. Kroc is the definition of pull yourself up by your bootstraps, the American-made, self-made man. And there's a quote that he has. One of Ray Kroc's famous quotes is this. Luck is a dividend of sweat. The more you sweat, the luckier you get. Isn't that our culture? The more you sweat, the luckier you get. You see, we as Americans love these stories. I mean, we love rags to riches, pull yourself up by your bootstrap, self-made man, because in America, anybody can be catapulted to greatness. Anybody can be a seller of a billion hamburgers. You can achieve the American dream if you just Work hard if you just have enough luck, if you just pull yourself up by your bootstrap. Some good blood, sweat, and tears will get you ahead in life. Now, sadly, this mentality has crept into our view of Christianity and how God operates with us. Last year in 2016, R.C. Sproul's Ligonier Ministry, along with our own Southern Baptist Lifeway, research did an extensive study it was called the state of american religion they polled over 3000 adults that's a pretty big that's a pretty good sampling 3000 adults across america and asked them questions about christianity asked them questions about faith and i want to give you some of the answers from 3000 americans 65% agree with this statement everyone sins a little but most people are good by nature agree, by the good deeds that I do, I partly contribute to earning my place in heaven. And here's the kicker. 77% agree, an individual must contribute his or her own effort for personal salvation. Today is the 500th anniversary of the Reformation. And five powerful truths, some would even call them slogans, have emerged out of the Protestant Reformation. Now, Pastor Andrew, two weeks ago, looked at faith alone, sola fide. Last week, I looked at scripture alone, sola scripture, but there are five. And so, what are the five solas of the Reformation? Well, it all starts with sola scriptura. Now, the word sola is Latin for alone or only, scripture alone. And we saw the Bible alone is our highest authority. There's no other authority besides the the Bible. And then sola fide, faith alone. It's not works, it's not merit. We are saved by by faith alone in Jesus Christ. Then number three is called sola gratia, grace alone. We're saved by the grace of God alone. It's a free gift of salvation. And then number four is what's called solus Christus, Christ alone. Jesus Christ alone. He's the only Savior. He's the only way. He's the only Lord and King. And then to wrap it all up, 
the final sola is soli deo gloria, to the glory of God alone. We live for God's glory. So I thought about what type of sermon would I do on the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. I could do a topical study, and then we could look at the, the five solas, and we could look at all these different doctrines, and I could pull some topics here and there. And then I went back to John 17, where we've been hanging out for the past few weeks. And I began to study John 17 more, and I'm like, you know what? These truths actually just emerge right here from Jesus' words. I don't have to go searching anywhere else to find out how these truths have emerged that, that we've come to believe because Jesus himself has shared them for us. So what I want us to do this morning is just to look at what Jesus teaches in his high priestly prayer and just realize the simple truth. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God this morning. Look at verse 1 where the prayer begins, and we're going to go through verse 10 this morning. Look at verse 1 where the prayer begins, and we're going to go through verse 10. This morning. John 17, 1 through 10. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Since you've given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you've given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you've sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed." I've manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they've received them, and they've come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I'm praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you've given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. I can't say enough how everything starts and ends with the glory of God. Usually in the list of the five solas, soli deo gloria is last because it ties everything together, and I think it's a good way to tie everything together, but I think it should be front and center. Everything comes back to the glory of God. How many times does Jesus in this prayer, Father, glorify me. I want the glory. I want to be glorified. Glorify. Glorify your name. All of this glorified language. And so everything comes back to the glory of God. We display the glory of God. We exist for the glory of God. The chief end of man is to, to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. And if there's one passage of Scripture that I've been meditating on for the past year in Emmanuel Baptist Church, this is the verse I want us to live by. If there's nothing else you hear this morning, Psalm 115.1, Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to Your name give glory for the sake of Your steadfast love and Your faithfulness. Let me just stop and ask you a question. Has not God been faithful to you? Has not God shown you steadfast love? If God's been faithful and God's shown you steadfast love day in and day out, all the glory goes to him. It's not to us. Not to us, O Lord, but to your name give the glory. It's all about Jesus and his glory. It's to God's glory alone. And Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 10, 31, so whether you eat or drink, 
or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Everything comes back to God's glory. This prayer that Jesus prays is all about God's glory. So what I want us to do this morning is to camp out in verses 6 through 10. We've camped out a lot in verses 1 through 5. We're going to move on from that. Verses 6 through 10, I want us to see three truths that emerge. And they're very simple truths, but they're life-changing truths. Here's the first. God rescued us out of the world by His grace alone. Notice verse 6. I have manifested your name to the people who you gave me out of the world. God has rescued us out of the world. Now, what does this mean that we've, we've been rescued out of the world? How were how we born? We were born into this world. We were born sinners. We were born guilty. How, how does Paul describe what it means to, to be born in this world? What's our condition before God rescued us? Well, Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, Paul gives a pretty graphic description of what it means to be in the world. Well, listen to what Paul says. This is your life before you were saved, before you were rescued. You were dead... And the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. We, We were caught up in this world system. We were sinful. We were worldly. We were captivated by Satan. Our, our flesh was working against us. We, we, were, we were living for ourselves. We were living as a product of this world. But God has rescued us out of the world. What, what, what does the world have to offer us? What does it mean to be saved out of the world? Listen to how John describes it in 1 John. 1 John two fifteen through 17 Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that's in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. You see, here's the stark reality. There was nothing inherently worthy or meritorious or good in any of us that moved God to rescue us out of the world. As a matter of fact, we were helpless. We could not save ourselves. We were separated from God. We were sinful. God did not look down and say, man, there's a lot of good in those people. They deserve it. I'm going to rescue them out of the world. No, God chose to rescue us out of the world in spite of all of our sin. That's why Paul can say in Colossians 1, 13 through 14, he has delivered us from where? He's delivered us from the domain of darkness. And he's transferred us to the kingdom of his son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of his sins. This is all grace alone. Being rescued out of the world is grace alone from first to last because you cannot contribute to your salvation in any way possible. God has to save you. God has to grace you. It's got to be grace alone. And when you stop and you think about it, This whole idea of grace alone is very offensive to our culture. And as a matter of fact, it's offensive to us as Christians at times. Because what does grace alone tell us? What does it tell you? You're helpless, you're hopeless, you're hellbound, and you can't save yourself. You must rely totally upon Jesus Christ as your Savior. 
You can't contribute one thing to your salvation. You see, we're hardwired to want to somehow earn our way. Tell me what I got to do. Tell me what rules I got to keep. Tell me what hoops I've got to jump. I know there's got to be something I've got to do. I can't just, there ain't no such thing as a free lunch. There's got to be something I contribute to to bring about my salvation. So when you tell me it's by grace alone, I don't buy it because I buy into this rugged individualism. I buy into this pull myself up by my bootstraps. I buy into this pioneer spirit. I can do it. Thank you very much, Jesus. I'm in charge. Don't tell me I'm helpless. Don't tell me I'm hellbound. Don't tell me I need your grace. I've got to have some say in the matter. Many of us resonate with the poem Invictus by William Ernest Hensley. It was written in 1875. Listen to the last stanza. See if this doesn't capture the heart of the American culture. It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishment the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. I'm the master. I'm the captain. I'm in charge. You see, we do not like to be out of control. We like to be in the driver's seat. We like to have a say. We like to to, to manage things. And so grace alone comes along and says, you can't manage, you can't work, you're not in control, you can't contribute, you can't offer. The only thing you offer is your sin. You can't offer your good deeds, you can't offer your works, you can't offer your righteousness, you can't offer your merit. There's nothing you can offer to God. It's grace alone from first to last. It's a free gift. And that, that is offensive to some people because we want to be in control. We want to take the initiative. We want to have a say in the matter. We want to somehow say, there's something I've got to do to earn this. Just tell me what I've got to do to earn it, and I'll do it. Tell me I'll hide a jump, and I'll, I'll jump. Because after all, I can contribute to my own salvation. Now, notice verse 6. Jesus says, I've manifested your name to these people that you've rescued out of the world. Now, why does Jesus use this type of language to, to manifest the name of God? To manifest means to reveal, to show, to teach. Why the name? Why did, did Jesus say, I've manifested your name? You see, in the Bible, God's name is his essence. It's who he is. Almost every time God talks about his name, it's synonymous with all that God is. It reminds me of when Moses is at the burning bush. Remember when Moses is at the burning bush and and God shows up to him? Listen to what God and Moses have this discussion. In in Exodus chapter 3, verse 13 through 15, Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me a very important question, What's his name? Who's this God that's sending you? Moses, what's his name? What what am I going to say to them? And God said to Moses, here's what you're going to say to them. I am who I am. And he said, say to this people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. And thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Jesus is telling these disciples, listen, when he's praying to the Father, I've shown them who you truly are. I've shown them that you're the great I am. And see, there came a point in time in your life when the light bulb went on. You saw God for who he truly is. 
His name was manifested to you, whether it was through a preacher, whether it was through a conversation, whether it was through a book, whether it was through a podcast, whatever means God used, there came a point in time where the light bulb came on and you're like, now wait a minute. This God is holy and I'm a sinner. This God is righteous and I'm a rebel. I've owned up to my own personal sin and I see the gap. I know who this God is. And at that point in time, you've, you were manifested. The, 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 the name of God was manifested to you. You saw Jesus for who he truly was. It's, it's very similar to what happened to Peter. Back in Matthew chapter 16, Jesus has his disciples there at Caesarea Philippi, and he asks them a very important question. Matthew 16, 13 through 17. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do the people say the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who's in heaven. There was a point in time where you saw the light. You saw who Jesus was. God did a work of grace in your heart to, like we sang earlier, open the eyes of my heart. I want to see you. God did that work of grace to open your eyes. Jesus called you to himself. In John 10, 27, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they followed me. At one point in time, Jesus called you. The sheep called you. You heard his voice and you followed. So here's the first truth. God rescued us out of the world by grace alone. But here's truth number two. It's very simple. Here's the second truth. We placed our faith in Christ alone. Now notice the descriptions that Jesus uses for the disciples, what they have done. Since Jesus manifested himself to them, since Jesus has rescued them, since all these things have happened, what was the response of the disciples? Well, let's look. Look at verse 6. I've manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me. They've kept your word. Okay, verse 8, for I've given them the words you gave me and they've received them. Okay, they've kept the word of God. They've received it. And look very importantly there. Middle of verse 8, they have come to know in truth that I came from you. Your translation may say truly or something like that. In the original language, it's this way of saying with certainty. Beyond a shadow of a doubt, the disciples have come to know in truth that Jesus is who he says he is, that he's the Messiah, that he's the Lord, that he's the Christ. They're firmly convinced. They know in truth. They're convinced of it. They believe that Jesus is the Messiah. This is the truth of Christ alone. Christ alone. Now, the reformers out of the Protestant Reformation they recaptured the Christ alone theory because, or the doctrine of Christ alone, not a theory, the doctrine of it, because of the Roman Catholic Church and the Mass and all the things that were going on with the, with the priests and everything, that it was getting so convoluted that it got back to Jesus is God in the flesh. He's the only way of salvation and he died on the cross for our sins and he rose again and salvation is only through Christ. Not through some mediator, not through some priest, not through some sacrificial system. It's only through Jesus as the only way to God. Now, one of the reformers came along a few years after Martin Luther. John Calvin wrote this. 
He says, there's nothing that Satan so much endeavors to accomplish as to bring on mists, fog, with the view of obscuring or covering up Christ. Because Satan knows that when he does this, he's opened up every kind of falsehood. Therefore, there's only one way of restoring pure doctrine to place Christ alone before us and all of his blessings so that we can truly see him for his excellence. You know what the devil's trying to do in our culture today? He's trying to create a mist or a fog to somehow cover up Christ alone so that we would have false views of who Jesus is because Satan knows if you get Jesus wrong, you get salvation wrong, and you you have a lot of problems. So Calvin says the way to do that is to to put Christ before us as, as who he is in all of his glory, in Christ alone. We sang it earlier, in Christ alone. He's the only mediator. 1 Timothy 2, 5 through 6. For there's one God and there's one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is a testimony given at the, pro- at the proper time. Christ alone. Now you may think, well, that's not a big deal. I, obviously we believe in Jesus, but do you realize that Christ alone is under attack today? Let me give you some examples of how the doctrine of Christ alone is under attack. The first one's pretty obvious to, to spot. It says this. You've probably heard our culture say something like this. You Christians are very bigoted, narrow-minded, and restrictive to say that Jesus is the only way of salvation. He's not the only way. He may be a good way. He may be one of many ways. But for you to say he's the only way, you're being pretty narrow-minded. It's not Christ alone. It's Christ and he may be a good way. But, But you can't dare say he's the only way. If somebody ever says that to you, Here's what you should say to them. I'm not saying it. Jesus is. You want to hear what he has to say? Then quote to them John 14, 6. And be nice when you do this. So John 14, 6. Jesus said to him, if you're going to argue with somebody, argue with Jesus. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. It's Jesus. Peter, when he's preaching in Acts 4, verse 12, says this, There's salvation in no one else, for there's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And there's a lot of examples in today's culture of people that are downplaying Jesus as the only way, especially Christians. I'm not talking about the the, the atheist or the agnostics out there that are pressing against Christianity. I'm talking about reputable um, people that were once solid are now coming out and waffling on that. Now, Rob Bell is one of those. You probably heard of Rob Bell. About 15 years ago, he was a pastor of a megachurch in Michigan. He was a solid preacher. And then over time, he kind of started to, to go downhill. And then about six years ago, he came out with a book called Love Wins. And in this book, Love Wins, he laid his cards out on the table, got fired from his church, moved to Hollywood, and now he's partnering with Oprah doing a new type of spirituality when just 15 years ago he was like me, an evangelical pastor of a solidly conservative Bible-believing church. And in that book, he would say things like, a lot of people know Jesus by communing with nature, and they may not even know who Jesus is. They could be a sincere Buddhist. They can be a sincere Hindu. They don't have to have conscious faith in Jesus as the only way. They can experience Jesus in all different types of pathways and avenues. That's one way Christ alone is under attack today. If you deny that Jesus is the only way to heaven, you de- you've destroyed this precious truth of Christ alone. Now, there are also other ways that Christ alone is being combated today, and that is there are some 
supposed evangelicals who would say, now wait a minute. When you say Jesus died on the cross to take the punishment for sin and that he absorbed God's justice and he took God's wrath, that is way too out there. That's too bloody. That's too offensive. You're basically saying that that God punished Jesus in our place so that we could be free. That God poured all of his anger and justice out on Jesus in our place so that we could go free. That's blasphemous, they'll say. They'll say things like, that's cosmic child abuse. One one guy says that's a monster God. Let me just ask you a question. If God did not punish Jesus' sin in your place on the cross, where else is he going to punish it? The only other place for him to punish us is for you to spend eternity in hell. So praise the Lord that Christ took the punishment for our sins on the cross and rose again so that you and I would never have to receive that punishment. We sang it earlier. In Christ alone, the wrath of God was satisfied. You see, people don't like the talk of blood or cross or wrath or, or, or this whole idea of God's justice against sin. Another example of how Christ alone is downplayed or maybe even softened is some people look at Jesus as a mere example. He's a good moral teacher. He's a good guru. He's a good life coach. He's a good therapist. He's got some good principles for living. My mantra is, what would Jesus do? And and I'll just do it. As opposed to, what has Jesus done? The call to take up your cross daily and follow him and to repent and to, and to, to give your life to Christ, that's not talked about. What's talked about is give me the the moral principles that Jesus did and I'll just follow his example as a moral example. You don't really need Jesus as a savior. You need him as a moral example. And see, when you you go down this path of of denying Jesus as the only way, denying the substitutionary atonement, uh, saying that we only just follow Jesus as an example, you're cutting the guts out of the gospel and it's no longer Christ alone. Now back to John. They've kept his word, they've received his word, they've believed in truth, or they've, they've, they've come to know in truth. But look at the very last part of verse 8. For I've given them the words you gave me, they've received them, they've come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have what? They have believed. They believed. This is faith alone. They trusted in Jesus Christ alone as their Savior. They believed. And when John uses the word believed into, believed in, it's this whole idea of plunging your entire life into Christ. You're accepting all of him. You're you're trusting fully in who Jesus is. It's by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. Salvation is a free gift from first to last. It's not a result of works because if it was a result of something you could do, then all of us would step foot in heaven and have something to boast about. If even there was one thing you contributed, you could walk into heaven and said, God did 98%, but there's 2% that I contributed to. I can boast about that 2%. But Paul here says, no, salvation from first to last is a free gift, and it comes through faith. That's what the disciples did. They believed. They have come to know in truth that Jesus is who he said he is, that Jesus is the only way. So first, 
Salvation's by grace alone. God rescued us out of the world. Two, we placed our faith in Christ alone. We've come to believe that Jesus is the only way of salvation. But number three, this grace and salvation is to the glory of God alone. Look at verse 10. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. Jesus is glorified in us. When we place our faith in him, when he rescues us out of the world, when we, when we come to trust him, when we come to accept that free gift of salvation, when we come to realize we can't contribute to our salvation, it's simply by faith alone in Christ alone. Who gets the glory alone? Jesus. I am glorified in them. I want you to think about your salvation for a moment. Was there anything you could do to pay back God for what Christ did on the cross for you? Is there any way you can pay back God? No. Listen to Martin Luther. I've reread The Bondage of the Will, this 500th anniversary of the Reformation. I think it's his best book. He would say it's his best book. Um, but, but Luther's a little um, prideful at times about his own accomplishments. But um, Bondage of the Will, this is what he said. See if you can resonate with Luther's words here, because I think all of us can. Quote, If I lived and worked to all eternity, my conscience would never reach comfortable certainty as to how much it must do to satisfy God. Whatever work I had done, there would still be a nagging doubt as to whether it pleased God or whether He required something more. The experience of all who seek righteousness by works proves that. How much is enough to please God? Do you ever have that nagging doubt in your heart that you haven't done enough? What if, what if I live my whole life and I haven't done enough? Well, let's just play this game. Let's say you lived a really good life. You kept your nose clean. You did a lot of good deeds. You came to church. And let's say at the end of your life, you got a 98% on God's test. Now, most of you students would be like, a 98 is great. That's an A+. 98%, I'll, I'll live with that. Let me ask you a question. God's standard is not 98%. What's God's standard? 100%. So God says you've got to be 100% perfect 100% of the time. So if you did 98% right and you just came up that 2%, guess what? That's not enough. Because God's standard is perfection. So it's still not enough to meet God's standard. And let's just say this. Let's say the 98% that you did were really good outward deeds that fooled other people into thinking that you were good, but on the inside, you had a bad attitude. On the inside, you had negative thoughts. On the inside, you had impure motives. On the inside, you had pride. So even the outward deeds that you did still had inward pride. You could fool everybody else, but you can't fool God or yourself. Is that good enough? Even the good things you do. Isaiah 64, 6. We've all become like one who's unclean. And all of our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf and our iniquities like the wind take us away. Even the good things we do are like a polluted garment. Can you pay back God? Can you do enough to get in God's debt? Can you do enough to merit? Is there enough that you can do at the end of the day where God is pleased with what you did? Or salvation from first to last grace alone? A free gift that God gives. Listen to how Paul describes this in Romans chapter 11, 33 through 36. Oh, 
the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who's known the mind of the Lord? Who's been his counselor? Who's given a gift to him that he might be repaid? These are rhetorical questions that are answered nobody. For from him and through him and to him are all things to him be glory forever. Amen. God gave you his scripture alone so that you could know that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. Now I want us to turn to one passage of scripture that I think summarizes God's glory alone in our salvation. So would you do me the favor of turning to Ephesians chapter 1? And you will see a repeated refrain three times in Ephesians chapter 1. Paul repeats it three times, to the praise of his glorious grace, to the praise of his glory, to the praise of his glory. He piles on all these blessings upon blessings, and then he just stops and says, I've got to praise God. Piles on more blessings, I've got to praise God. So let's read this together as an act of worship. Read this as if it, you were reading it for the very first time. And as I'm reading this truth, these are truths that are true for you if you're a Christian. This is your identity, Christians. This is who God has made you to be. This is what God has done for you. This is how God has blessed you. So take these as things that are true for you this morning. And if you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, these things aren't true for you, but they can be if you place your faith in Christ alone this morning. Let's read Ephesians 1, 3 through 14. And by the way, this is one long sentence in the Greek text. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of of His glorious grace with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. In Him we have redemption through His blood. The forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight making known to us the mystery of His will according to His purpose which He set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we've obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. So that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him also when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, We're sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. God the Father chose to save you by grace alone. 
Jesus Christ chose to come and die for you by grace alone. And the Holy Spirit's been given to you as a deposit guaranteeing your inheritance by grace alone. And Paul three times says, to the praise of God's glory alone. So may these truths drive us to our knees in humility, in adoration, as we worship our great God to the praise of his glorious grace. Let me ask you to bow your heads. And I want you to spend some time praising God for grace alone. Praise God that he saved you. Praise God that he rescued you out of the world. Praise God that he sent Christ alone to you. Give all the glory alone to God in these moments. And praise him for his amazing grace in your life. Praise you because you're worthy to be praised. We give all the glory to you in our salvation because we could not contribute anything. From first to last, it's a work of grace. Thank you that it's a free gift. Lord, my prayers, if there's anybody in this room this morning that's not believed in truth that Jesus is who he says he is, that today would be their day of salvation. They would place their faith in Christ, Lord.